Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Every year, Bloomberg NEF brings out its electric vehicle outlook, and the, the 2022 version was just released. It's got all sorts of fascinating insights into it. So I'm going to talk to Colin McCarricker, who is the head of advanced transport for Bloomberg NEF. So welcome to the interview, Colin. Thanks, Markham. Good to be back on the show with you. Nice to have you. Now, this is fascinating. We've got a lot to cover today because we do. Uh, we do. The world of electric vehicles, electrification of transportation is proceeding faster than anyone anticipated, even a few years ago, uh, partly because battery technology continues to improve and prices, well, they're going to go up a, a bit in the short term, but the long term trend is rapid uh, decreases in price. There's policy pressure towards net zero. And then of course the automakers are the amount, the hundreds of billions that are being invested in the switch to electric by even 2026 is, uh, is, is really quite breathtaking. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and this is something we've, this is the seventh year we've published this report. Um, and actually this year, there's a, a pretty big increase in the, in the near-term forecast and out to 2025. And, that reflects a bunch of the things you just talked about. It also reflects um, some specific policies. So each year when we do this report, we're sort of saying, what is the current picture? But it's, we're not trying to forecast elections and trying to forecast policy changes because that's very a bit of a fraught area, right? Or at least certainly it's not our area of expertise. But two big things have happened um, in, the, in the last 12 months since we put out the last one on the policy front. One of them is Europe aiming to phase out combustion vehicle sales by 2035. Uh, and the other one is the U.S. publishing new corporate average fuel economy regulation targets out to 2026 that the Biden administration has put in place. Both of those are driving significantly more um, policy pressure, which in turn is allowing automakers to sort of accelerate their timelines, knowing that the policy background is a bit more certain. Well, let's talk about the near term outlook to 2025. Uh, the numbers are, are quite startling. Uh, on the passenger EV side, you're forecasting that the fleet, the global fleet, uh, will increase from just under 20 million to almost 80 million, uh, a fourfold increase. That's uh, a bit jaw dropping. Yeah, a huge increase coming and, uh, and with, with big implications, right? So, so in most of the last 10 years have really just got us to this point where EVs are about one, one and a half percent of all the cars on the road. So a huge amount of innovation and work and everything to get to that point. But now you're at the point where the fleet starts to grow quite quickly. And that's where you start to get changes to the energy markets as well as just the automotive market. So if you think about the, the fleet as on a significant lag from new sales, the disruption to the auto market has already sort of happened, but there isn't actually that much impact to the energy markets yet. But what we start to get towards 2025, 2026, is you start to get a significant amount of the fleet starting to go electric, which of course then starts to impact things like oil demand as well. Right, and, and another segment of the market that you, uh, that you forecast is electric buses, vans, and trucks. So the medium and heavy duty sector. Mm -hmm. And I think this 
it, it, it's, it's certainly in the last 12 months, it's getting a lot more attention because it wasn't that long ago, two, three years ago, we were debating the issue of, well, will, will they eventually go, will it be electric or will it be hydrogen or some other low, low carbon fuel? And electric has, uh, seems to be surging. And you see, especially on the medium duty side, plenty of fleets already looking to electrify. Yeah, definitely. And this is an important point. We don't just look at passenger cars in this. We look at two and three wheelers, buses, trucks. The two and three wheeler segment, that's already going very fast. That's happening in, in, in Asia. Um, there's already uh, almost 200 million, or sorry, almost 300 million two and three wheel vehicles on the road uh, globally. So that one is already kind of gone, if you will, that are electric. Then, um, as you say, there's a lot of interest right now in the kind of medium and light commercial vehicle segment and a lot more models launching. Uh, in that one. So that one's going to go quite quickly in the 2020s. And then the big remaining question is what happens with heavy duty long haul. So this year we also tallied up all of the heavy truck models that are launching for, from both the electric side. So battery electric trucks, these are big rigs um, and fuel cell uh, trucks. And one of the things we found is that in terms of what's actually available today, there are 68 different uh, heavy truck models available today in different parts of the world. There are currently only two uh, heavy fuel cell vehicle truck models available that we were able to find that you could actually go and buy. So it looks like uh, some of the same things that happened with the debate around passenger cars that we might've had 10 or 15 years ago about whether those go fuel cell or go electric. At least if we think model choice is a leading indicator of what actually happens in the market, it looks like a similar dynamic may play out on the heavy truck side, but there is still some challenges there. Heavy duty long haul is gonna be the hardest thing to electrify. Uh, because of the weight of the batteries, because of the long distances traveled, and because of the refueling times, uh, but any so so we're watching that closely, and we're we're not making a really definitive call on it yet. But certainly, what we're seeing right now is uh, electric jumping out to an early lead over hydrogen, even in that heavy uh, heavy long haul trucking segment. Did you take into account, and what's your what is your take on the new battery technologies? And the reason I ask is because I've done some interviews recently with with uh, well, they're not startups; they're they're mature companies that are coming into the market with like silicon anodes and mm -hmm. and uh, solid state uh, technologies, and that promise you know twenty to forty percent improvement in energy density, and that seems to would it would have a significant impact on that long haul uh, segment? Yeah, so we don't explicitly model any big uh, step changes in battery technology, but what we have, what we do model and what we have observed over the last uh, 10 years of gathering data on this is that on average, the shipped volume um, for all lithium ion batteries in going into vehicles, energy density improves about six or 7% a year, which is quite remarkable. And that really starts to add up over time. So I think this is one of the challenges people always, when they're looking out further out and say, doing these comparisons for trucks, they're thinking of the picture today and saying, this is the battery today. And I'm going to use that in my comparison in 2030. Um, the battery in 2030 is going to look very different. Um, and and there is a, there's quite a range of different um, innovative technologies coming to market. Picking exactly what's going to commercialize and scale up quickly is, is always tricky. But I think one thing you can very safely say is that density is going to continue to improve. There is a bit of a move to lithium iron phosphate batteries in the passenger car segment because they're cheaper, quite stable, and get rid of nickel and cobalt. And that pulls things a little bit in that segment away from higher density because it's actually a slightly lower density, um, at least on a volumetric basis solution. But there is still a lot of innovation going on in the higher density chemistries and some of the newer technologies you mentioned. So I think it's very safe to say that we are 
in the early innings of, of how just how good a battery can get. Uh, as I said, only one and a half percent of all the cars on the road in the world today are electric. Um, and so, so that's, that, there's a lot of room left to run. And, and one of the things we know from watching other technology stories is as the volume goes up, the rewards for innovation in that technology go up and up as, up and up as well. And that really lights a fire under, under the innovators to, to continue to, to push forward. Let's talk about the long-term outlook to uh, 2040. And uh, again, jaw-dropping numbers. You're forecasting just over 70 million uh, units per uh, EV units uh, per year by 2040. And I think the market now, it didn't it peak in, in the, a few years ago at around 90 million. And then it's, it dropped a little bit since then, uh, probably because of the pandemic. But I mean, essentially what you're forecasting is that EVs will make up, you know, 80 or 90% of, uh, of all uh, like passenger sales by, well, it's 18 years. Yeah. And some markets go a lot faster than that, right? Actually, places like China, parts of Europe um, are actually going to hit those numbers even sooner, probably closer to 2035. Uh, and then some smaller economies even sooner than that. So I'm actually sitting in Norway right now, and, and we're already at those kind of numbers here today. Now, that's generally due to pretty strong support from the government, but um, you're going to start to see really high adoption rates in other places over the next decade. So certainly it's a, it's a sea change for, for the overall vehicle market. The unsubsidized price parity, so basically the sticker price out on the lot, you're forecasting is, there's going to be parity in all models of light passenger vehicles by the by the late 2020s and commercial EVs price parity sometime in the 2020s in most markets and I guess that's you know what everybody's waiting for is the the price the sticker price to be the same as the internal combustion engine car that they're considering yeah and price, price parity is sometimes a tricky concept right because it's not one point in time it's it's always attractive to say look it's, it happens in 2024 or it happens in 2025 the reality is different segments hit price parity at different times and different countries do as well based on the average purchase price in, in, the, in that country. So price parity is best viewed as kind of a continuum rather than one universal point in time across the globe. But what we, what, what we think is that that hits kind of generally between 2024 and 2028 across all segments. Now, some of the smaller segments are gonna be a bit harder to dislodge because you've got a fair bit of battery costs going into a vehicle that otherwise is quite cheap. Um, and some of the more expensive segments, you would say, are already pretty much at price parity. I mean, it's pretty hard to argue that, say, a Tesla Model 3 isn't at price parity with a, a BMW 3 Series. So the higher end of the market, you could already say today, in many, in many cases, is already at price parity. And what the, the big chunk of volume that, that takes a bit longer to get there that you need battery prices to come down further for is some of those entry-level mass market vehicles. So things like a Toyota Corolla or a Honda Civic, where you're in the kind of low $20,000 purchase price, you still got a lot of battery costs that you have to cover and to, to make that competitive. So that, that's, the, that's the ones that take a bit longer to get to that price point. Um, but again, in some cases, there are subsidies available that, that bring those dates closer, or in some cases, there are supply push factors that the automakers are forced to hit a certain CO2 target or even a certain quota of EV sales. That means the prices they offer to consumers may not be fully reflective of their, their internal pricing to make the vehicles. So price parity is a tricky concept because it's a continuum and because what an individual automaker will choose to do depends on their own pricing strategy. You look at, say, Ford and the F-150 Lightning, 
they're going to go out and try and make sure that they own the full-size pickup truck market the way they have in the past, and they'll use pricing on the F-150 to sort of defend that tariff. Exactly what it costs them to make that F-150 Lightning, that entry-level one, uh, it's a bit hard to say. But the bot, so so again, those dynamics are it's a continuum across different segments, and each automaker has its own pricing strategy. Well, let's talk about automakers for a minute. Uh, a colleague and I uh, added up the amount of capital that's being uh, committed to to fund the switch from internal combustion engine manufacturing to electric vehicle manufacturing. And just for the largest automakers, so in Japan and Korea, North America, didn't include uh, China, it was $341 billion by 2026 and $411 billion by 2030. But one of the, the, the things that you can't help but notice is that the automakers keep committing more capital. Every year there's, there's new announcements. So while that number is very large, what are the odds that in fact, as the race to electrify intensifies, they'll, we'll see even bigger numbers be announced? Yeah, I mean, we, I was, we, were, at an, we were hosting a conference last week in Munich. I was speaking to a, a senior member of, uh, of, of the team at a, at a big uh, auto manufacturer. And one of the things he said is he just said, look, I've spent my whole life working, my whole career working on internal combustion engines. And all of a sudden in the last 12 months, I'm no longer working on internal combustion engines. The, the models that we're launching for the rest of the 2020s, the new platforms that we're launching for from here on out are electric. So, so th that really gives you a sense of what, what a big change that is and yeah, how much money the automakers are plowing into it. And the way to think about investment from automakers, it's it's the leading edge of, of the wedge for what happens much later. So if you're building a new EV platform that you're going to launch in 2026, 2027, you're putting in huge sums of money now because those are the sort of development cycles that you have uh, in the automotive sector. So what, what's a bit hard to convey is that all that money takes a while to show up in the sales, but it will show up in the sales because once, once um, companies have committed that kind of money, put all that money into the development side, converted all the factories, then you really want to put volume through those platforms. You want to put volume through those factories to pay off that big upfront investment. So we're sort of crossing the Rubicon, if you will, on that front is automakers have made those investments, are making those investments. And then once they do, they have a very strong incentive to put serious volume onto the market. And that's what's going to happen in three, four, five years. As your Bloomberg call, call, uh, colleague, uh, Nat Bullard says, and I love this phrase, CapEx is destiny. Yeah, and that's a great way to put it. And it, it, it tells you where we're heading and the direction of travel is very, very clear. Exactly. Now let's talk about what's new in uh, 2022. Uh, this one is caught my eye because it's a subject of intense debate in Canada and the United States. And that's the impact on oil consumption. The mm -hmm. graph I'm looking at shows that the road transport Oil consumption is about, oh, 46, 47 million barrels a day. And starting about 2030 begins to decline. And by 2050, gets down to 25 million. And, the, uh, and that happens without any other changes in policy. That's just market demand and, yeah. and uh, technology change. Uh, and so that could even change if, if policies become strict. I have to admit, I was a bit surprised. That's a big drop. 
Yeah, and this is where the two sort of scenarios we do come in, right? So we do actually two scenarios in this report. One of them is what we call our economic transition scenario, which is no new policies assumed. What's the sort of techno-economic market forces alone path we're on? And the other one is this net zero trajectory where if you're going to get to by 2050 um, to zero emissions from the transport sector, you need to both decarbonize the power system, which is a separate report we do, and you need to move to, to electric or fuel cell vehicles. So, so certainly neither of those scenarios are, are very positive for, for oil demand. Um, and what's, what's interesting is that we actually think now that road transport oil demand peaks in 2027. Um, and gasoline demand peaks a year earlier than that. So those are now quite tangible numbers, right? We're not talking about 2035. We're not, these are, these are dates that everyone can kind of relate to a bit differently. And so that's quite a, a big change from where we were even a few years ago. And if anything, the pandemic has sort of accelerated where we were on that because it really took a huge dent. It made a huge dent in internal combustion engine vehicle sales. They're way, way down, but they didn't make that much of a dent in the electric vehicle market. The electric vehicle market has continued to grow rapidly throughout the pandemic. Um, and that sort of led to this, this statement that we made that internal combustion engine vehicle sales are now past their peak. They peaked in 2017, they're in terminal decline. It takes some time for that to flow through to things like oil demand. Um, but we now see oil demand from road transport peaking by 2027, you could still have growth in overall oil demand through things like aviation and petrochemicals. That's not my, my area of expertise, but certainly road transport is the biggest single consumer of oil and we see it peaking this side of 2030 now. I wanna talk about a UK case study you did on the value of vehicle to grid. And so specifically, uh, you know, F-150 Lightning, you can buy a kit and you can wire it into your house so it can provide power for up to three days uh, or longer. And so th that specific uh, kind of application, but also the broader idea that electric vehicles, electrified transportation brings additional value, more value to the, to the consumer than an internal combustion engine. Uh, your take on that. Yeah, definitely. And, and I've been a bit of a skeptic of vehicle to grid technology for the for a while, I, it always felt like a bit of a solution in search of a problem. Um, but what we've seen is that more and more automakers are committing to adding some version of the technology. Now, what they're generally starting with is what you might call vehicle to home. So you can power your home from your car. Um, if there's a blackout, or you can power a series of appliances and, and plug some things into it. So that's kind of step one. And then the next step is full vehicle to grid in integration where you can push power back up into the grid. There's a few vehicles that offer this today. There's more coming, Volkswagen committing to the technology, most notably uh, Hyundai Kia also, um, also doing more there too. So that made us think, okay, well, we need to, we need to go back and really reevaluate our priors and check if we've got this right. Um, so what we did is we integrated vehicle to grid capability into our power system modeling to say, look, we've got our forecast for EV adoption. We know what share of the fleet we think is going to be electric in different years. What does that mean for the power system? And one of the things that you find with that is that if vehicles can both smart charge and push power back up into the grid at the right times, it allows you to integrate significantly more renewable intermittent generation into the grid and turn off more gas power generation or more coal power generation. So there's a direct emissions benefit from enabling some vehicle to grid. Now, not everyone's gonna do that. 
Um, it's, we were modeling relatively modest uptakes of it because not everyone will have the capability or the inclination to want to do that. But the conclusion from it was is that there's a pretty serious benefit to the overall grid, both in terms of emissions and system costs. Uh, renewables are, are the cheapest new source of bulk generation. So if you are able to reduce curtailment of renewables, turn down some more of the gas and, and coal usage, you get a cheaper system overall. So, so that was kind of a, a really interesting finding this year. Very, it's something that's been hypothesized for a while, uh, but actually feeding all of this data into our power system modeling, we were able to say, yeah, actually there is a, a significant system-wide benefit from this exact uptake and how many people are gonna to wanna to participate is still to be determined, but there is value and, and there will be groups going after that. Well, the, the, speak another val, uh, definition or way of thinking about value I'd like to ask you about is this idea uh, that's very widespread in China is the EV as an iPhone on wheels. So mm -hmm. the uh, China has a much more digital, digital uh, culture than we do in North America. And the, they, they want their EVs to be an extension of that digital culture. And so the, I, the EV has to be much more plugged into apps and into their phone and into, the, into data and, and all of that. Uh, and that adds tremendous value in addition to whatever the, the cost of the vehicle is. Do you see that trend spreading to other markets like Europe and North America? Yeah, generally in-car connectivity keeps going up and it becomes a more important buying feature uh, for more and more consumers. I think China is a fascinating case because, as you say, it's, they're, they're generally faster on uptake of digital technologies overall. And also, the Chinese domestic automakers are, are quite good at in-car connectivity um, and, and, and infotainment and, 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 and these sorts of things. And what that's creating is the combination of that, a sort of more digitally native platform for, for the vehicles, combined with electrification, is creating this really fascinating dynamic in the Chinese car market where Previously, global uh, international car brands have dominated the Chinese market. And now what you're starting to see is quite quickly rising sales from the domestic brands. And that's because of this combination of in-car connectivity and electrification, which the Chinese automakers are doing faster uh, than, than, than Western ones. So it, we're watching that very closely. It's just sort of starting to happen now, but I think you're gonna start to see that accelerate. And then you may start to see that spread specifically led by Chinese automakers outside into the rest of the world too. But of course, all of the Western automakers and, and uh, Japanese automakers as well have, have very big programs on that and are pushing hard there too. Well, we've come to the end of the interview, uh, Colin. This is absolutely fascinating. Uh, any final thoughts? What should we look for in the next uh, oh, two to five years? Yeah, well, one thing we, we modeled this year explicitly and, and looked at this year is getting to net zero by 2050 is really hard. Um, and if you rely purely on changing out the drivetrain, so if you say, look, we're gonna take all of the internal combustion engine vehicles in the world and convert them over to electric, the last 10 or 20% is really hard. It, it starts to really strain the raw material supply uh, needed for the batteries. Uh, it's just a huge surge in manufacturing needed to get all these internal combustion engine vehicles off the road. So one of the things we did was model what we call a reduced demand scenario, where you shift more of that demand to public transit in cities, to walking and cycling. Um, to all these other things that you can do. And that makes the job of getting to net zero much easier. So the thing we emphasized in this year's report is you absolutely need very large scale up of electric vehicles to hit net zero targets. You need about a billion of them if we're rounding. 
Um, but you can make the job of getting to net zero a lot easier by pushing some of these other things that aren't just the drivetrain switch out. So cities, governments should be doing all of the above if they're serious about their long-term climate targets. Colin, this is absolutely fascinating. I can hardly wait to talk to you uh, in 2023 to see what's, uh, what's transpired between now and then. Thank you very much for this. Thanks, Mark. I'm great to speak to you. Thank you.